episode four of Catholic Campus Ministries Summer School Podcast Series. I'm Deacon Matt, the Catholic Campus Minister at Western Carolina University. And we've been looking in this series at different heresies that the church has dealt with in her history and what the church has learned by, uh, by kind of confronting these, these different errors um, that have cropped up and challenged the faith. Last week, we took a look at Arianism, which is the first major and really the greatest Christological heresy that the church had to, to contend with. Uh, this heresy occupied the church for most of the 4th century, uh, and the chief uh, error of this heresy was that it denied the full divinity of Christ. And one of the things that the church gained from its, um, its efforts to uh, combat that heresy was the statement of faith that we still profess every Sunday as part of our, our liturgy at Mass. And that's the Nicene Creed, where we express uh, fully our belief in the divinity of Christ, that Jesus Christ is truly man, but also truly God, and that his humanity and, and divinity are, um, are both maintained, and he is, in fact, co-equal, consubstantial, one in being with God the Father. Um, so uh, that took up, as I said, most of the fourth century of the church. The heresy that we're going to look at uh, in this week's episode um, is Pelagianism. Uh, and Pelagianism, you know, gets its start right around the same time, uh, the late 4th century and, and really uh, taking off in the 5th century. So we're moving forward in time just a little bit. Um, and just to refresh our memories about uh, the, the historical reality of the church at this time, um, you know, the church had just recently come out of a period of, of very harsh persecution uh, when it had been a crime punishable by death, just to be a Christian within the Roman Empire. Uh, that had changed um, in the early 4th century after the conversion of the Emperor Constantine, who made uh, the Christian faith legal at the Edict of Milan in the year 314. And that enabled the church to kind of emerge into the public sphere and naturally just allowed for a, a great increase in the number of conversions uh, being made. Uh, so the church was growing during this time at an incredible rate. And so it shouldn't surprise us that this time was also a, a period of strife and controversy within the church. Right? As the church was growing and bringing in large numbers of new converts and spreading across Europe and encountering different cultures, um, a lot of uh, this expansion came with... Um, uh, with new ideas, um, new new thoughts about the faith, new ways of practicing the faith, and not all of those ways and ideas were orthodox. Some of them were quite unorthodox in terms of their, their understanding of the faith. Uh, they were incompatible with the apostolic uh, faith. And so we saw this played out uh, last we uh, week in, in episode three uh, on a very large scale with Arianism. It really, truly did divide the church um, with, uh, I believe I said last week, as many as 80% of the bishops falling into this Arian heresy at, at, at its height. Um, but Arianism was not the only controversy that the church had to deal with uh, in the fourth century. There were other heresies around at the time, uh, smaller maybe less impactful, but still still a real threat to the church. 
if you uh, think back to episode 2 on Gnosticism, uh, we talked about lots of different Gnostic schools, Gnostic uh, leaders. Um, one of those Gnostic sects that uh, survived and kind of plagued the church during the, the 4th and 5th centuries was Manichaeism. Manichaeism was a, um, a particular form of Gnosticism. It's named for its founder, who was uh, someone named Mani. He lived during the early 3rd century, and so obviously his, his school, his Gnostic movement, um, outlived him. Uh, and his version of Gnosticism was very dualistic. Um, he uh, taught uh, of the existence of a good God who created the spiritual realm and an evil God who created the physical realm, the physical world. And these two gods, um, according to Manichaeism, were equal and they were locked in an eternal struggle. Um, of, of more contemporary relevance to the late 4th century is uh, a heresy called Donatism. Uh, no, they didn't worship donuts. Um, it was, it's Donatism, D-O-N-A-T-I-S-M. Uh, and it takes its name from uh, a bishop of Carthage named uh, Donatus. And he was a schismatic bishop. Uh, he um, was not in union with the church. And the origins of that heresy arose um, you know, nominally over a dispute of, uh, over who the, the actual bishop of Carthage was. That's why Donatus was, was schismatic, uh, because uh, he, he did not have a legitimate claim to the, uh, to the see in Carthage. Uh, but its main error, what made it a heresy, was uh, a belief that the validity of the sacraments depended upon the holiness of the minister of the sacraments, that if the minister of the sacraments was um, was in sin, that he was incapable of conferring the grace of the sacraments, which naturally leads one to uh, uh, call into question um, the the ordination of uh, of a priest or a bishop if the one doing the ordaining um, is is thought to be sinful, uh, and it would also, of course, call into question the validity of the Eucharist, the validity of confession, uh, and and all the sacraments. So, it's one that the church had to to swiftly condemn. Um, and I mentioned these two heresies in in particular, um, Manichaeism, Donatism, uh, because during the late fourth century, during the early fifth century. Um, these would be the heresies that um, the, the major hero that we're going to be talking about today, St. Augustine of Hippo, uh, would be focusing on. Uh, St. Augustine would be um, dealing with both of these errors um, when a third major heresy would be brought to his attention, and that's Pelagianism. So let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about Pelagianism now. Um, Pelagianism is named after um, uh, a monk named Pelagius. Um, we don't really know about uh, a lot about his early life or his formation. Um, he is uh, said to be a British monk. Um, some will make the claim that he um, was actually Irish and then came through Britain on his way to Europe. Um, but uh, in any case, he, he does come to Europe, and we first have historical record of him uh, in Rome during the first decade of the 5th century, so the, the very early 400s. Uh, he's described as being tall, portly, uh, very well educated, um, a master of both Latin and Greek. He, uh, he was uh, familiar with pagan philosophies, uh, especially Stoicism. Um, he was not uh, an ordained cleric, but he was a monk, and he was very dedicated to a life of asceticism, 
to, to living uprightly, righteously, upright moral living. Um, St. Augustine uh, would later describe him as a very saintly man, uh, despite uh, his, his theological errors uh, in terms of his personal um, uh, demeanor, his personal um, uh, behavior. Augustine described him as a saintly man. Um, so Pelagius uh, came to Rome, like I said, in the, the early 400s. We don't really know why, what brought him to Rome, but once he was in Rome, uh, he, uh, he starts to write, uh, write a lot of works, uh, mostly commentaries on the scriptures, um, and also works dealing with Christian morality, and that's what made him famous. Um, he, he wrote quite a bit on the need for a more pure and stringent morality among the Christian people. Uh, he was astounded by the the lax uh, and so I guess somewhat apathetic lifestyle that he observed many Christians practicing, uh, especially in the the more urban areas of of Europe, uh, including Rome, where he was. Um, he he saw that people were very poorly catechized in their faith. Uh, some people believed that um, if you were baptized, that guaranteed your salvation, and therefore. The moral life is is kind of unnecessary. It doesn't really matter if you sin or not, because if you're baptized, you're saved. And of course, that's not a correct understanding of the, of the way baptism works. Other people believed that um, it was impossible for people to to live a real, upright, moral life, and so it's pointless trying. It doesn't doesn't matter. Um, or or a more moderated view of that is that. It takes heroic virtue to really lead a life of true holiness, and some people are called to that, right? Some people, the 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 monks, the nuns, but you know, for the most of us, the regular people, you know, uh, a moral life is just impossible. So again, why why bother trying? Um, so this bothered Pelagius, and he he wrote a lot in 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 opposition to that, saying yes, it is possible for the, the the average person to live a moral life. In fact, it's necessary; it's required of us to live a moral life, and and we should. Um, Christianity at this time, as I said, it was it was growing; it was rapidly spreading. Um, it was a religion of the emperors, um, and a lot of people were persuaded to join the church uh, because it was easy at this time to become a Christian. Um, it was a good way to advance your political career. It was a good way to gain imperial favor. It was a fashionable religion to be in the empire, uh, and so it's not hard to imagine that people who are very sincere in their Christian faith. Um, would be resentful towards those who they saw as being weak Christians or Christians in name only, right? Um, you can imagine the, the parable that Christ tells of the workers in the vineyard where those who show up to, to work at the beginning of the day and they labor all day, um, you know, they in the end they get paid the same as those who are hired on late in the day and they resent those that were hired on late in the day because they received the same payment, uh, right? They were resenting, in effect, the generosity of, of God. Um, and so it's easy to imagine, you know, people who are really trying to live a, a true life of Christian discipleship being resentful of those who, um, you know, are not as stringent, you know, in their faith. Um, so Pelagius 
was one of these people. He comes from a, mona from a monastic background. Um, he, he comes from a, a background where upright moral living and, uh, and a life of asceticism and denial is, is very highly praised. Um, and, uh, you know, so he, he, so he wanted to bring this out of the monastery and into the lives of ordinary Christians. And so in his writings, this is what he taught that it's possible for every person, each and every person, to live a life of moral purity and virtue. That this life of, of, of virtue and moral purity was possible through our natural human powers, through our human intellect, through our, our use of, of, of our will. He taught that the human intellect was capable of knowing good from evil, and our human will is capable of choosing good over evil. And so it's within our power, it's within our natural human power to, to know good and to choose good, and thereby we can be saved. We can be saved through our knowing and choosing of, of the good. And his teaching was very attractive to a lot of people because he certainly was not the only one who um, you know, was resentful of the, the lax moral behavior of a lot of people in the church. He was not the only one who wanted Christians to live a more uh, upright moral life. And so he had, his, his teaching was attractive to a lot of people, right? And uh, so what's wrong with it? <laughs> you know, shouldn't Christians live an upright moral life? I mean, isn't, isn't that what we all strive for? Well, listen to his basic premise again, right? His premise is that the human intellect is capable of knowing good from evil. The human will is capable of choosing good over evil. And by knowing and choosing the good, we can be saved. We can assure our salvation. Well, what's missing in that equation? Where is God? Where is Jesus? Where is grace? Right? There's no room for grace in this you know, Pelagian scheme here. So, uh, while on the surface Pelagius is advocating for a good moral life, what he's doing, in essence, is denying original sin and the need for grace. And this is a fundamental aspect of our Christian religion. Because without original sin, without this, this, um, uh, this fall that has affected all of mankind, there is no need for Christ. There's no need for the incarnation. There's no need for Christ's suffering and death and resurrection. Because without that universal fall, there's no need for a universal Savior. Right? So try and imagine Christianity with no Good Friday, with no Easter Sunday. Right? This is ultimately what Pelagius was, was teaching, right? that it's possible for a human person to save themselves effectively. It's possible for a human person to achieve salvation just by living an upright moral life apart from the grace that is offered by God through Christ. According to Pelagius, Adam's sin did not damage human nature generally. It just served as a, as a bad example for mankind. Right? So, if there's no original sin, that also means that we have to re-examine some of our ritual practices, specifically baptism. Baptism cleanses us from sin, 
But if there's no original sin, if all the sin that we have is personal sin, the sin that we, we commit ourselves, then baptism only cleanses us of that personal sin. And so what this means for the practice of infant baptism is that it's, it's unnecessary. It becomes totally unnecessary because infants, you know, those younger than the age of reason, aren't capable yet of committing a, a personal sin. The only sin that they have is that original sin. So what does that do to the practice of infant baptism? Right? It, it makes it totally superfluous. And this is where Pelagius got himself into trouble. Right? If, if he hadn't have, have denied the necessity of infant baptism, he probably could have gone along just kind of, you know, advocating for his upright moral, moral living, um, quietly, kind of subtly denying the need for grace, quietly denying, you know, the reality of original sin, and, and maybe most people wouldn't have noticed, right? But you start to call into question a long-held and cherished Christian practice, right? A ritual of our faith, and and the fur starts to fly, especially when you're talking about our babies. Christian parents baptize their babies. That's a tradition that dates back to the apostolic times. This is how parents bring their new little children into God's family. It's, it's how people are initiated into the sacramental life of the church, and, and this is something that is very near and dear to the hearts of Christian families. You know, as a father myself, you know, I've, uh, you know, who has baptized, you know, all of our children and, and we've had children that we sadly have lost, you know, in the womb. And, you know, I can tell you from personal experience, the urgency that Christian parents feel to have their children baptized uh, as soon as possible at the earliest opportunity. It's the solemn duty of Christian parents to make available to their children all of these graces that God wants to give them through the sacraments, right? Why withhold those graces? Now, I realize that that uh, there are groups of Protestants today that disagree with the Catholic Church uh, on this. Most Protestant churches, most of the mainstream Protestant churches, also practice infant baptism and also believe in original sin. Uh, but there are some, mostly in the Baptist tradition, uh, that that deny this. Um, these uh, the Baptists that we have, we have a lot of them here in the South. They grew out of the Anabaptist communities of the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, who denied not only the necessity of infant baptism, but they denied the validity of infant baptism. And that's why they're called Anabaptists. The, the name means rebaptizers because they required adult uh, converts to their, uh, to their version of Christianity uh, to be rebaptized if they had been baptized as infants. So they were called Anabaptists or the rebaptizers. Um, and the claim made by the Anabaptists is that the original church back in the beginning only baptized adults. They didn't baptize infants. And it was around this time that we're talking about this week, during the 5th century, that infant baptism was actually introduced into the church. They claim this because um, in uh, combating Pelagianism, St. Augustine and, and others would write a lot about infant baptism. And so they point back to this era in the 5th in the century and they say, well, here's where infant baptism was introduced. Now that's historically inaccurate. 
um, if we if we want to look for the earliest controversies surrounding infant baptism, it actually wasn't Pelagius. Uh, the earliest controversies surrounding infant baptism uh, occurred during the third century. Um, and uh, it didn't have to do with whether or not infants should be baptized, actually. It had to do with whether or not it was necessary for parents to wait eight days after a child was born before baptizing that child. Uh, and the reason why they got that idea was because in Colossians chapter 2, St. Paul um, draws a parallel between circumcision in the Old Covenant and baptism as the sign of the New Covenant. And because um, Jewish parents circumcised their infant boys on the eighth day after birth, there were some Christians that argued, well, if baptism is the, the new circumcision, we should baptize our babies after eight days, right? We should wait eight days after they're born and then baptize our babies. Um, and the argument against that um, was, no, we don't even have to wait eight days. We should baptize our babies as soon as possible. Um, so that was the first controversy around infant baptism. And it was settled in the year 252 um, by a council of bishops at Carthage um, that met to discuss this. Um, it, this was not an ecumenical council. The first ecumenical council, as we, we talked about last week, was the Council of Nicaea that dealt with the Arian heresy in 325. Uh, so this was a local council uh, of North African bishops that met at Carthage. Um, but still, what they decided was that, you know, it's not necessary to wait any length of time to baptize a, a child, even eight days. Infants could be baptized at any time. There's no, no limitations, you know, to be put on that. So that was the first controversy around infant baptism. There was no suggestion made at that time that infant baptism was an unnecessary thing um, or was an ineffective thing. St. Hippolytus of Rome, uh, again, this is in the 3rd century, the year 215, says you should baptize first the children. Um, uh, around the same time that this controversy was going on in the year 244, um, Origen, um, one of the, the early church fathers, stated that the church has baptized children ever since the time of the apostles. So he's claiming apostolic origin for this, this practice. And certainly in the New Testament, we see references not to infant baptism in particular, but to um, whole households being baptized. And so um, uh, uh, conceivably these households would have included children as well. So here you have in the, the fifth century now, Pelagius is coming onto the scene and he's saying all of a sudden, you know, infant baptism, this, this long and treasured practice in the church is unnecessary. And, and futile, you know, um, and that really does create an uproar in the church, uh, as you can well imagine. So Pelagius is there in Rome, he's, he's writing, he's, he's preaching, he's, um, he's, he's spreading his views, and while he's there, he, uh, he befriends another monk who's also living in Rome named um, uh, Caelestius. Uh, now, Caelestius was a nobleman uh, by birth, um, he uh, had uh, been a lawyer professionally, um, but like Pelagius, he had decided to dedicate himself to a life of monastic asceticism. Uh, and he also was a staunch proponent of moral virtues. Um, and so he was attracted to the teachings of Pelagius. He befriended Pelagius. Um, and uh, Caelestius actually accompanied Pelagius in the year 411 when they left Rome together and went to North Africa. And it's there in North Africa that the Pelagian heresy really began to spread. 
and the controversy became, um, it, it just exploded uh, from there. Uh, Pelagius himself was only in North Africa for a very short time. He, he stayed there for a while, but then he moved on to Palestine. But Caelestius stayed in North Africa. He was uh, seeking to become a, a priest, to be ordained a priest in Carthage. And it was at this time, while he was seeking ordination in Carthage, that a deacon there named Paulinus um, wrote a letter to the bishop of Carthage um, to make him aware that some of Caelestius's views and opinions were, were rather questionable. Um, specifically, he accused Caelestius of uh, teaching the following errors. Uh, one, that Adam would have died even if he hadn't have sinned. Okay, so in, in other words, death did not come about as a result of original sin, but it's, it's just a natural thing that all humans are subject to, even without sin. Two, that Adam's sin only harmed himself. It did not harm the, the, the whole human race. Three, that newborn children are in the same state that Adam was before the fall. Four, that the whole human race does not die through Adam's sin, nor does it rise in Christ's resurrection. Five, that the, the law of Moses is as good a guide to heaven as are the Gospels. They're both equally effective. And six, even before the time of Christ, there were men in the world who lived sinless lives. So all six of these errors, in a nutshell, denied the reality of original sin and the necessity of grace, um, is what they all amount to. And that's the essence of the Pelagian heresy. So Calestius was, was summoned after, after this to a synod in Carthage, a gathering of the bishops, and he was asked to defend himself against these, these accusations. Calestius did not deny any of these statements uh, that were attributed to him, but he merely offered that, you know, the question of original sin is not a matter of settled doctrine, and therefore by denying it, he is not committing a heresy. That was his, his excuse. So the synod condemned those six statements, and they denied him ordination, which was probably a wise idea. But Calestius did not uh, accept defeat. Um, no, no heretic accepts defeat easily. That's what, what makes them a heretic. Um, he didn't accept defeat. Um, he just moved. He left Carthage and he went to Ephesus and he sought ordination there and he was ordained a priest in, in Ephesus. But during his brief time in Carthage, his Pelagian views just infected the church there in North Africa like a virus and they spread. Uh, and, and the ideas that had been condemned by this synod just continued to, to spread throughout North Africa so that the North African bishops really made this the subject of, of their attention. They started to preach um, uh, really in earnest about the reality of original sin uh, and hammer that home, that original sin is a fundamental doctrine of the faith uh, in order to combat the spread of this growing heresy. And the greatest of the North African bishops at this time was St. Augustine, 
St. Augustine of Hippo. This is when he comes onto the scene. Um, if you're not familiar with St. Augustine of Hippo, um, I encourage you to get to know him. He's one of the, the most brilliant theological uh, minds of the early church. Um, he is a spiritual giant. Um, he is a prolific writer. Um, his most famous work is probably his Confessions, which is kind of a, an autobiography of sorts. Uh, and a few years ago, it was actually made into a, a pretty good movie called Restless Heart. It gets its name after um, uh, a very famous quote from the, the first chapter of uh, Augustine's Confessions, uh, in which he's talking to God, and he said, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Um, the story of St. Augustine's early life it really is one of restlessness. Um, he was somewhat of a playboy, uh, somewhat of a worldly uh, figure, um, uh, and uh, eventually uh, came to um, to pursue truth in religion, um, but did so initially through uh, the Manichaean heresy that I mentioned, you know, earlier in this in this podcast. He was, in fact, a Manichaean. Um, afterwards, he converted to um, to Catholicism and became a Catholic bishop. Uh, leader of the church, uh, and would then uh, go on to combat that same Manichaean heresy, uh, as well as the Donatists, uh, as I mentioned, and then now Pelagianism as well. Um, so I'll put a link on our website to uh, to some information about St. Augustine um, and uh, and even a link to that movie. I was looking on YouTube earlier to find a, a trailer for the film that I could link to, uh, and I saw that they actually have the full uh, the full movie available on YouTube. So I'll put a link uh, onto that. You might want to watch it um, and uh, and learn a little bit more about the the life of this the spiritual giant uh, in the church. Um, but you know, it's because of these life experiences that St. Augustine had. Uh, you know, he, he knew and understood heresy from the inside. He understood the attraction of some of these heretical doctrines, uh, that he was very efficient in dealing with them. Um, he gained a reputation as a bishop uh, for, for dealing very pastorally with heretics in order to bring them back, you know, into the fold. Um, He's credited with, with dealing death blows to, to three major heresies, um, as I said, Manichaeism, Donatism, and, and Pelagianism. But he also brought back into union with the church um, schismatic groups, uh, the Tertullianists and the Montanists, uh, who had been separated from the church for centuries. You know, he reached out to them and was able to bring them back. He, he did this work using charity and truth together. Uh, in conjunction uh, as tools to win the hearts and minds of, of those who had strayed from the truth of Christ. Um, so it's important to note in all his preaching and all his writing against uh, Pelagianism and these other errors, um, he, he never attacks the, the, the heretics themselves. He never attacks the character of, of Pelagius or Kylistius. Um, he simply teaches the truth. He attacks their errors. He addresses their teaching. He doesn't engage in ad hominem attacks. He always treats the, the, the people with great charity. Um, and, and one of the uh, weapons, so to speak, that Augustine used in his fight against the, the error of Pelagianism was the tradition of the church of baptizing infants. Um, he, time and again, in his writings and in his preachings, just affirmed the necessity and the validity of this ancient practice. Everyone needs a Savior. 
Everyone needs Christ, even infants, even the youngest among us. And he, he stressed that. He stressed in his writings that if an infant died without the grace of baptism, that meant that the infant died in a state of sin and therefore was, detest, was destined to eternal damnation. He denied the existence, and this is a quote, between damnation and the kingdom of heaven of some middle place of rest and happiness, for this is what the heresy of Pelagius promised them. Uh, that's a quote from uh, On the Soul and Its Origin. Um, now, this view sounds harsh to us, uh, right? This view that uh, if an infant dies without baptism, that that infant is going to hell. Um, but we have to, to understand the nuances here. Our, we, our vision of hell, what we think of as hell, is largely, um, you know, it, it comes from a lot of the imagery in like Dante's Inferno, um, and, uh, and and maybe like horror movies and things that, that we've seen. Um, Augustine's understanding of hell was, was somewhat different. He understood that there were different degrees of punishment in hell um, and that unbaptized infants would be the recipients of, of the absolute least and mildest punishment. Um, in another work, uh, Contra Julianum, or Against Julian, um, he writes, Who can doubt that non-baptized infants, having only original sin and no burden of personal sin, will suffer the lightest condemnation of all? I cannot define the amount and kind of their punishment, but I dare not say it were better for them never to have existed than to exist there. Now, later theologians in the church would develop Augustine's thoughts, and they would define damnation as the deprivation of the beatific vision, right? The beatific vision, which is beholding God face to face. Um, and, and that deprivation of the beatific vision doesn't necessarily involve any positive punishment, any direct punishment, right? Um, it's just not beholding God face to face, which is something that, that none of us deserve and is outside of our natural um, capacity uh, anyway. Uh, and so distinctions were made between the the pain of sense, which described the torments of of the damned that uh, that condemned sinners were subject to, and the pain of loss, which is just the sorrow over being absent from God's presence. Um, and so the the idea was that unbaptized infants, because they had no personal sin, would receive really no punishment at all. And even though they were technically damned because they were outside of this beatific vision, their life was one of total and complete natural happiness, which is something that we don't have in, in this world. And so uh, it was not a life of suffering. It was a life of total and complete natural happiness. Um, the word limbo began to be applied to that place of total natural happiness. And eventually it came to be thought of not as a, um, uh, uh, an, an aspect of hell, but as something that was distinct from hell, that was apart from hell, right? Uh, and that, that distinction came about during the Middle Ages, uh, and it would kind of remain, I guess you could just say, the dominant Catholic view until relatively modern times. And it's actually a subject still being debated. Limbo is never a definitive teaching of the Catholic Church, because when we're dealing with the question of, of what happens to those who 
who die without any personal sin of their own and only original sin, you know, is salvation possible for them? Does God have, what is God's plan for them? Um, you know, that's something simply that has not been revealed to us. We, we don't know the answer to that. We just know that, that what God has revealed to us is that, you know, grace given through, ordinarily through baptism is is the way to uh, you know to to be made part of Christ's body and therefore um, to inherit eternal life, right? Um, the the Catechism today in talking about this issue, um, and I'll I'll read from uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph twelve sixty one, states: As regards children who have died without baptism, the Church can only entrust them to the mercy of God, as she does in her funeral rites for them. Indeed, the great mercy of God, who desires that all men should be saved, and Jesus' tenderness towards children, which caused him to say, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, allow us to hope that there is a way of salvation for children who have died without baptism. All the more urgent is the church's call not to prevent little children coming to Christ through the gift of holy baptism. Um, and, and in the year 2007, um, the, the International Theological Commission, which is kind of like a think tank um, within the church, um, actually published a document that, with the approval of, of Pope Benedict XVI called The Hope of Salvation for Infants Who Die Without Being Baptized. Uh, and it's, it's a document that kind of explores this issue of, well, if the Catechism says that we you know, have a reason to hope, if we can hope for the salvation of, of these infants who die without baptism, what might be some of the reasons for that hope? How might this be possible? And so I'll, I'll put a link in the, on our website to, uh, to that document as well as to an article that I actually wrote about that document when it came out that was um, published by Catholic Answers. Um, so you can get more information about that. But it's interesting anyway to see how debates that, that began in the 5th century uh, in some ways are still ongoing today. But to go back to Pelagianism, um, while Augustine was, was busy inoculating you know, the North African church against the error of Pelagianism, um, Pelagius himself, you know, he did not go into retirement by any means. He had moved on to Palestine, and he was causing controversy there in Palestine as well. Um, in the year 415, uh, a synod in Jerusalem convened to address this issue of, of Pelagianism, and, to, uh, and that synod did not condemn him. Um, it didn't declare for him either. Rather, it just decided to leave the matter open. Uh, in that same year, 415, uh, Pelagius was summoned to another synod in Caesarea, and there he successfully defended himself uh, against his opponents and was declared by that body of bishops to be in full communion with the church. So we had kind of a weird situation here where you have a, a pretty famous figure in the church by this time, Pelagius, uh, being excommunicated in North Africa, uh, but yet declared a Catholic in good standing, you know, in Palestine. And so, you know, this situation couldn't, couldn't stand, it couldn't last for long. And so the, the bishops in North Africa uh, met again. They had two different synods um, in, in the year 416, and both times they reaffirmed their condemnation of, of Pelagius. Um, and then, you know, in an attempt to settle the matter just outside of their region, to settle it universally for the church, they made an appeal to the Pope, uh, Pope Innocent I. Um, and in the Pope's reply, Innocent um, uh, wrote back, and he began by restating the principle that 
lo- you know, the decrees of local synods were not binding on the universal church unless they were approved by the Pope. Then he went and, you know, at length uh, expounding upon the, the doctrine of original sin and the necessity of grace. And then he ended by affirming the excommunication of Pelagius and Caelestius um, un- unless they repented of their, their heresy. And that papal response was greeted with much joy in North Africa. And on September 23rd, in the year 417, St. Augustine announced to his congregation, uh, Cosa finite est, or basically, case closed, right? Um, Rome has spoken. But if you're learning any, anything by, by learning about these heresies, uh, you'll notice that they don't just go away because the church has declared against them. Uh, the church may have declared Pelagianism a mortal blow, but it would take a while to bleed to death. Um, Pelagius and Caelestius appealed to Rome. Uh, but before their appeals could reach the Pope, um, he died. And his successor, Pope Zosimus, was presented with their case. Um, and Pope Zosimus recognized that the teachings that had been condemned by his predecessor, Pope Innocent, um, were formal errors, and he had no doubt about that. These were heresies. But Zosimus had questions about whether these two men, Pelagius and Caelestius, were actually guilty of teaching those errors. Did they believe these things? And so Zosimus refused to uphold their excommunications before he heard their cases again. So were these two men actually guilty of these errors that they were being accused of? Pelagius had written a work in the year 416 which, in which he seemed to backstep a little bit from his earlier positions um, and, and accept more the teachings of St. Augustine, although he did not completely renounce his, his views. Uh, so, for example, he said in this document that infants should be baptized so that they could enter the kingdom of heaven. But he defined the kingdom of heaven as something different from eternal life, which he said was possible without grace. So he didn't entirely, you know, recant his his position. Uh, Caelestius, on his part, he wrote a confession of faith for Pope Zosimus, and he claimed in this confession to believe faithfully in the whole body of Catholic doctrine. Um, so Zosimus seemed ready to, to remove the sentence of excommunication. Uh, but the African bishops pleaded with the Pope to um, maintain that excommunication unless Pelagius and Caelestius specifically confessed the necessity of grace. They have to specifically confess that because they, they knew these two men were, were very wily with their words. They were, they were great orators. They were, um, uh, you know, they were very good at kind of speaking in flowery language and, and saying words that sound good, but, but that really skirt the issue. Right? They would give lip service to the Orthodox faith, but in reality they, would, uh, they were just couching their own views in, in a more acceptable language. Um, so, so they really pushed the Pope to say, you know, no, they need to specifically confess that grace is necessary for salvation. So Pope Zosimus held off on his decision um, until he could, could investigate the matter further. Um, in the year 418, a, a council was held at Carthage, uh, which condemned Pelagianism with the following eight canons. And a summary version, uh, they stated, 
1. Death did not come to Adam through physical necessity, but it came to him through sin. 2. Newborn children need to be baptized on account of original sin. 3. Justifying grace not only forgives past sins, but it also assists us in avoiding future sins. 4. The grace of Christ not only gives knowledge of God's commandments, but it also imparts the strength of will to execute those commandments. 5. Without God's grace, it is impossible to perform good works. 6. We confess ourselves as sinners, not only from humility, but also from the truth. We are, in fact, sinners. 7. The saints pray, forgive us our trespasses, not only on behalf of others, but about themselves as well, on behalf of their own sins. Even the saints are sinners. And 8. The saints pronounce this not from humility, but only, but from truthfulness, right? So in other words, these eight canons reaffirmed the reality of original sin and the necessity of, of God's grace. So even though Carthage was not an ecumenical council, those canons um, were regarded as binding on the universal church because they were approved by Pope Zosimus. Um, and uh, that kind of put an end to the hopes of, of Pelagianism. Um, in that same year, the Roman emperor, um, Emperor um, Honorius, um, issued a decree banning Pelagianism in the empire. Uh, so we don't really know what happened to Pelagius or Caelestius after uh, this year, after 418, um, but the Pelagian controversy uh, continued to survive on the, the outskirts of the empire, and the church had to deal with it for, um, you know, for uh, a long time after this in places like Wales and, and Ireland. Um, and, and in fact, a lot of people today um, take a similar view of, uh, of salvation to that of Pelagius. Um, how many people can you think of that you know that believe that, you know, if we just live good moral lives, if we're just good people, then we can be assured of, of heaven, right? If you're a good person, you go to heaven. doesn't matter if you go to Mass or not. doesn't matter if you go to confession or not. doesn't matter if you're baptized or not. It um, doesn't even really matter if you're Christian or not, right? If you're a good person, you, you go to heaven. That's what a lot of people still believe today. Now, that goes beyond what Pelagius actually taught, um, but it's the logical end result of his teaching that um, grace is not necessary, um, right? Because if grace is not necessary, then Christ is not necessary. Um, and it, he becomes superficial. Uh, the church is unnecessary. The church becomes superficial, right? Um, if what Pelagius taught is true, that our human intellect and our human will are sufficient for us to know and, and do the good, and if that's all that's needed for our salvation, what, what need do we have of Christ and his, his redemption, right? Um, so that's, that's kind of the logical end, end result um, of, of Pelagius' error. Now, it's important for us to note in charity that Pelagius didn't see himself as an agent contrary to Christ or contrary to the church. He didn't want to get rid of Christ. He didn't want to get rid of the doctrines of the Incarnation or the Trinity. He didn't want to get rid of the sacraments. He didn't want to get rid of the church. He never advocated for any of that. At, at its heart, he wanted to reform the church, and he really wanted to return Christians to an upright moral living, which is a good thing. He just didn't see... Or, or perhaps just didn't want to admit to 
the end result of his positions um, and, and their incompatibility with the apostolic faith. Thankfully, men like St. Augustine did see these things and could correct those errors. Um, and, and Pelagius's teachings gave St. Augustine the opportunity to, to really expound upon what the church teaches regarding original sin and sanctifying grace and the sacrament of baptism and other issues. Um, when Kylestius told the Carthaginian bishop, um, you know, back when he was seeking ordination in Carthage, that his denial of original sin wasn't really heretical because it was not a, a defined issue, you know, he wasn't just being smarmy with the bishop. Yeah, that was the truth. Original sin was an acknowledged reality. It was a belief of the church, but it was an undefined belief of the church up until this time. And so St. Augustine really gave us a lot of our, our theology around original sin that we still rely on today. Um, he taught that the effects of original sin um, are an alienation from God and a loss of that, that grace that God gives us. Uh, and since God is love, if we're alienated from God, then we're alienated from love. And that's what creates in us this disordered love, this selfish love that needs to be infused with grace to be ordered rightly again back towards God and, and others. Um, and this is why human beings, ever since the fall, have been inherently selfish. I heard someone say one time, if you don't believe in original sin, just put one cookie on the ground in between two toddlers and watch what happens, right? You'll witness original sin. And I can sympathize with that as a parent myself, right? I've raised small children. I know small children are like the most selfish creatures in the world. All they can think of is their own wants and their own needs and their own, their own pleasures, their own comforts. Um, they have to be taught. They have to be taught not to be selfish. And they need God's grace to, to really learn how to love in a self-giving way. Um, when, a, when an infant desires something, they want it with like their whole being. And the only thing that keeps them from killing to get their way is the fact that God and his wisdom and providence, you know, made them so tiny and helpless <laughs> you know, that they're incapable of doing any damage. If that same kind of selfish rage was present in an adult, you know, they, you know, it would just be total chaos. Um, so anyway, uh, St. Augustine argued successfully that, that grace alone can convert this unnatural love of self that, that we have as a result of the fall into a love of God and into a love of others. Um, Christ commands us to do this. He commands us to love God with all of our heart and mind and soul and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we can't do that without the grace of God. And, and furthermore, that grace from God can't be earned. It, it's nothing that we, we merit ourselves. It's pure and sheer gift that God bestows upon us. Now, St. Augustine's teachings against Pelagius, you know, would cause some further problems uh, down the road uh, for, for Augustine and his teachings. Because if we are utterly incapable of living according to the gospel, of living a good moral life without God's grace, and God's grace can't be earned, but it's only given, then what does that do to the idea of human responsibility and, and the idea of our free will? It's possible that you can push Augustine's teachings too far uh, and, and come to a conclusion of um, this kind of deterministic idea of predestination, as some later theologians would try to do. Um, this idea that God only saves certain people that he, he chooses to give his grace to, and that those that God has not chosen are condemned to hell through no responsibility of their own. 
um, uh, there's a certain form of Calvinism uh, that, that came about that, you know, that in, in embraced this idea of predestination. Even in Augustine's own time, there were some North African monks that were concerned about this aspect of his writings. Um, you know, they would say, well, what then are we to make of, of Matthew's gospel where Christ says that we will be judged according to our works? according to the works of charity that we performed, um, you know, of, of giving drink and food and clothing to the least of these, to visiting those in prison and, and those who are sick, right? What are we to make of that? Um, and of, you know, and of importance to these, these monks, what's the point of living in a monastic lifestyle? What's the point of living this life of asceticism if everything is just dependent upon grace and not upon what we actually do? And Augustine himself responded to these criticisms by affirming that, no, grace always acts in conjunction with free will. Grace is absolutely necessary for salvation, that's, that's without a doubt, but it never forces our will. Grace doesn't force us to love God, right? He, he taught that it's the decision to sin that is not made in freedom, right? Sin enslaves us. When we decide to sin, we're, we're enslaving ourselves. Sin is a form of bondage, right? What grace gives us is the capacity to be truly free, uh, to freely choose the good and embrace the good. Uh, and today we say the same thing when the church teaches that grace cooperates with our fallen human nature to allow our human intellect and our human will to operate as God intends it to, which is in freedom, okay? So that's Pelagianism. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. Um, next week when we come back, we're going to look at, at two in one, two heresies, Nestorianism and Monophysitism. Uh, and these are, uh, again, dealing with the subject of Christology uh, and kind of picking up where, where we left off last week with Arianism uh, to a certain degree. Uh, but we hope we'll, we'll tune back in for that next week. Um, be sure to, uh, to listen in for that. I hope you have a great and blessed week. Happy Pentecost, uh, as this, this episode will, will come out the week after Pentecost uh, and a return to ordinary time. So um, we'll, we'll see you all next week, and God bless.